Good evening, and welcome to the Eno Pratt Free Library. The Eno Pratt Free Library is honored to host Mr. James Kilgore this evening. Mr. Kilgore is a writer and educator and a social activist who teaches and works at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. He currently lives with his family in Urbana, Illinois. Mr. Kilgore provides top-notch background information on our age of mass incarceration, as well as how to reverse this process. Breaking down precisely how mass incarceration has been a strategy to respond to inequality and unemployment. Understanding mass incarceration, a people's guide to the key civil rights struggles of our time, explores the movement of resistance to the practices of mass incarceration, as well as how mass incarceration was born out of opportunity and fast inadequate solutions. As activists have pointed out, prison embodies our failure to care. Framing this complex issue within the context of race and class, understanding mass incarceration traces history and theory up to the present day, while illuminating subject matter typically omitted from introductory discussions surrounding mass incarceration, such as the steadily increasing imprisonment of immigrants and the far-reaching impact of mass incarceration on communities of color. Understanding mass incarceration also explores gender and mass incarceration, including escalating incarceration rates of women and the inadequacies of the system in place, men to parallel men's prison and divorce along the gender binary, ignoring the needs of gender non-conforming individuals, a particularly important faction to consider within, consider when 47% of the black transgender individuals have been incarcerated. With awareness around language and oppression often left out of premise, it definitely examines our nation's relationship to incarceration and concludes with forward-facing alternatives and advice for those who want to organize for change and end mass incarceration. Please join me to welcome Mr. Kilgore to the Inoprat Free Library. Thank you very much, and thank you to the, uh, to the Pratt Library for inviting me to come here, and thank all of you for, for coming. Um, maybe I'd just like to do a quick survey here to just kind of get an idea of where people are in relation to mass incarceration. How many people sort of are, consider themselves to be pretty well informed about mass incarceration? Not really, that's why we Okay, well, I'm... I'm just trying to te I'm just trying to test the, test the audience. Okay, so and and how many people are sort of here to find out the, some some pretty basic information about, about it? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Fine. Thanks. Thanks very much for that. Um, so I'm going to try to talk a little bit first of all about why I wrote this book and how I came to write the book. The kind of motivation for motivation for this is sort of personal personal background. And um, I'm gonna I'm gonna bounce around a little bit um, to try to to try to keep everybody on 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 board with the with the content. So I think 
the writing this book brings together about four or five different threads of my of my life, um, and so it's not, it's not just a it's not just something that I woke up one morning and decided to write, but rather it kind of is a a result of of many other processes that came before. And I think the I mean, the the original roots of writing a book like this go back to being an activist in the 60s and 70s, various types of activity. But one of the things I was involved in was prisoners' rights. And way back in the early 70s, that idea that prisoners deserve to be treated as human beings came into my consciousness and stayed with me over the decades. And I want to read a statement from the Bill of Rights of the United Prisoners Union from 1970, which I think speaks quite a bit even about our situation today where we have 2.2-2.3 million people uh, behind bars. So this is, a, th- this is their Bill of Rights. They say, We, the people of the convicted class, locked in a cycle of poverty, failure, discrimination, and servitude, do hereby declare before the world our situation to be unjust and inhuman. Basic human rights are systematically withheld from our class. We have been historically stereotyped as less than human, while in reality we possess the same needs, frailties, ambitions, and dignity indigenous to all humans. Our class has been unconstitutionally denied equal treatment under the law. We hereby assert before the tribunal of mankind that our class ought not to be subject to one whit more restraint nor one more ounce of deprivation than is essential to implementing the constructive purposes of the criminal law. So that's kind of turning the notion of a criminal as a sort of second-class human being upside down and beginning to talk about criminals as human beings, which is part of where we're, where we're at today in terms of dealing with the issue of mass incarceration. So that's but one thread. A second thread that's very important for me in terms of writing this book is that I spent about 18 years in southern Africa. And during most of that time, I was an educator. And I was a high school teacher at times, but I also did a lot of work with communities, with trade unions, with social movements. And I did a lot of education for workers in particular about economic issues. And for most people, economics is not a lot of fun, right? It's complicated. It's got a lot of figures and graphs and all of that. But for trade unions, for workers, it's essential to be able to understand that. And I was fortunate enough to work in the period of the liberation struggle against, against apartheid in South Africa and work with educators who were top-flight intellectuals but had left the academic world to deliver education to shop stewards, to metal workers, to farm workers, to municipal workers, and so forth. And so they taught me how to unpack very complicated political and economic issues for education directed at people who typically hadn't finished high school and people for whom English 
was a second, third, fourth, even fifth language. So as I wrote this book, I had in mind that I didn't want to write an academic piece that was going to be dense and incomprehensible to the majority of people. So I kept those shop stewards that I used to work with in mind as I wrote this book. But the third thread that brings me to this book is six and a half years of being incarcerated in federal and state prisons in California. And this is the real spark that made me think a whole lot about what was going on in the prisons. Because while I was incarcerated from 2002 to 2009, I mean, I didn't really have this vocabulary that people use about mass incarceration and all of these things. But all I had to do was look at those prison gates every single day and see the endless stream of black, brown, and white bodies coming through that gate as if there was no end to the supply of people to be locked up. And I didn't know enough to write a book about it then, but I knew something was really, really wrong that was taking place. And particularly the fact that so many of these young men were black men and brown men, and so many of them had incredibly long sentences. 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, life, double life, life without parole, life plus 50. My friend Juan Carlos was doing 555 years for, for money laundering. And when I got the stories of people, the crime did not fit the punishment and the punishment did not fit the crime. So part of going out of, as I left prison in 2009, my, the people that I left behind, people like Miguel Quesada doing a double life sentence for admittedly a murder that he committed when he was 16 years old. Uh, Malik Roberts, who was doing life for a robbery. He had a long history of drug addiction. He was 50 years old. He was highly motivated to learn, to study, but he, he could only read a book from this far away because he was almost blind and he couldn't hear much either, but he was still determined to, to learn. So these people said, when you leave, don't forget about us. So writing this book was part of not forgetting about those people. And as I wrote, I was, not only, I was writing with those shop stewards in mind, but I was writing with the, with the population behind bars in mind. I wanted to write a book that I could hand to almost anybody inside that prison and say, you can read this. Not only is it going to talk about the complexities of, of prison and mass incarceration, but it's also going to have the voice of people like you. It's going to have the voice of people who are incarcerated. It's going to have the voice of their mothers and sisters and family members and community members and their voices when they return to the community and battle through the difficulties that people with felony convictions have to get employment, to get public housing, to get food stamps and all of, and all of those sorts of things. So that sparked me when I hit the streets to begin doing some research. But I also realized that writing and researching is not enough. So I, I was paroled to a very strange place. 
Champaign, Illinois. Anybody ever been to Champaign, Illinois? Urbana, Urbana yeah, yeah. Okay, great place. Well, it was a bit of a culture shock for me. Because as you know, if there's one thing you can say about Champaign-Urbana, it's flat. And it's nothing but cornfields. Right? Now, and I don't want to offend anybody here, but given where I was 18 years in southern Africa, six and a half years in prison, Champaign-Urbana was a whole lot of white folks. And that was really a big culture shock for me, trying to get back into, in, in, into that world. And I thought... I had this idea that I wanted to organize and to, to research, but also to do something about this problem of mass incarceration. But I didn't believe that I was going to find anybody in Champaign-Urbana that would be interested in that because it was surrounded by corn and a university and all that sort of thing. I just didn't think that was going to happen. But I was wrong. After I was there for a while, there was a lot of people that had been involved in the struggle for racial justice for quite some time. And I, and I was fortunate in an odd way because in 2012, the county sheriff and the law enforcement folks came forward with a proposal to build a new jail. They wanted to spend $20 million, $30 million on a new jail. They said the down, they, we had two jails. They said the downtown jail was dilapidated and run down. They had to close that one down and build a nice shiny new one out in the east end of town, out of sight, out of mind. So a bunch of us had read the book, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, and which talks about the racialized mass incarceration, the, the systematic incarceration of African Americans, particularly around the, war, around the war on drugs. And so we took a look at our own community in Champaign County. And when we looked in that jail we found the jail population was always more than 50% black, but the general population was only 13% black. It's a lot like Maryland, where we have the population of Maryland, from my reading, is about 30% black, and the prison population is about 70% black. But that's, 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 that's what I've read. But um, So... So we decided that rather than, rather than support the idea of a new jail in our community, we would try to resist that and get the county to spend that money on other things. And we eventually began to call ourselves build programs, not jails. Because what we wanted was the county to take the money that they were going to spend on that jail and to put it into programs that would keep people out of jail, that would put some opportunity and some hope into the, into the communities, and particularly into the African-American community, which was being funneled into the jail in extraordinary numbers. So I wish I could say that they've poured millions into mental health facilities, into job training, into education, into substance abuse programs. They haven't done that yet. They've put a little bit into a, a reentry program for people coming back from, from, from uh, jail and prison. But, the, but they haven't built the jail yet. I think that deserves a round of applause. <laughs>
So, so that's one of the threads. And it, in the book, there's quite a few stories that relate to to Champaign, to Champaign-Urbana, um, in, as, as a site where where people are have, have tried to to fight back against mass incarceration. So that's a little bit about why I read why I wrote the book. It's a lot of sort of personal threads coming together. I see the book as an educational piece, but also as an agitational piece. I want people to understand what's going on, the 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 horrors of this complete social disaster of mass incarceration, but also to find ways to do something different, to do something to do something better. So I want to talk a little bit about why this book is particularly important at this moment. But before I do that, I'm going to have a sip of water. Um, at the moment, I work at, I work at the university, um, but I, 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 I was on parole in, in uh, Champaign County, but I, w- I was never in, incarcerated there. So one of the things that's happened recently is that mass incarceration has all of a sudden become popular, uh, well-known, fashionable at times. A lot of people are talking about it. If we go back to 2012, for example, we'll find that in that presidential campaign, no one was talking about mass incarceration. No one was talking about the war on drugs. No one was talking about even the criminal justice system as a whole. It wasn't an issue. It was not an issue. But now, everyone from Rand Paul to Bernie Sanders is saying we're opposed to mass incarceration. We want to cut back on prison numbers. We want to end the racialized war on drugs, etc., etc. And there's a lot of, we have Newt Gingrich and Cory Booker, and we have a lot of kind of what they call you know bipartisan unity, what some people call hand-holding across the aisle of Democrats and Republicans who really can't, can barely agree on lunch, but seem to be now building this unity around opposing mass incarceration and doing something about that. And for me, this is a, a moment of great potential, and it's also a moment of a bit of concern. Um, but let's talk about the potential. The potential is that, I mean, if you're trying to address a serious social problem and, have, and make some change, somebody has to know about it. People have to be talking about it. It has to be out there in the public eye in order for some action to be taken. So that's a good thing. It's a necessary step to make change. And I think it's important also to think about why this has become so popular. I think there's two reasons why it's become popular. First is that prisons and jails have become incredibly expensive. They're like, in 1980 we were spending $6 billion on 
Corrections, now we're spending over $80 billion on corrections. So it's bleeding state budgets dry. It's, speeding, it's bleeding local budgets dry. And so particularly those politicians who are very concerned about fiscal matters, about the expenditure, about, about taxes and revenue and so forth, they began to see that even though they, had, they mostly had a history of being tough on crime, that this tough on crime was becoming too expensive. So it was time to find, to find something different. But I think a second reason is probably more important, and that is if we look at what's been happening over the course of the last couple years, we've seen a lot of popular mobilization having to do with criminal justice. First, we had a, lo- a widespread mobilization of immigrants' rights activists fighting against deportations and so forth, largely Latino groupings. And then, probably more importantly, from the moment of the killing of Trayvon Martin through a whole host of police killings. I'm sure people know these names, unfortunately. You know, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, Rakia Boyd, Sandra Bland. Um, We've seen mobilization across the country, Freddie Gray in particular in Baltimore, and we've seen communities in Ferguson, um, in Chicago, in New York, and in Baltimore rise up against this Black Lives Matter, Ferguson Action Committee, and so forth. And I think those rebellions, those uprisings, have scared politicians. And I think they have recognized that they need to take some action or this thing may spread to a level that they're unable, that they're unable to, to contain. So all of a sudden, we've seen the president takes some, a number of steps, uh, banning the employment box and so forth. We've seen him visiting people in prisons. We've seen a release of 6,000 people from the federal prison system. And um, we've seen the Pope visiting people in prisons. I mean, all of this is a big sea change. It's a big change in, 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 what's, been, in what's been going on. So this is a moment where we could see major progress in terms of ending or reversing mass incarceration. But it's also a moment where the potential to carry out the level of change that's needed could simply be squashed by politicians. That is, politicians make a lot of promises. And they talk a very good game, but ending mass incarceration needs a lot more than talk. And I think we have to consider the scale of this problem in order to figure out what needs to be done. The United States now incarcerates at a higher rate than any country in the world, at four or five times the rate of the highest incarcerating country in, in, in Western Europe, the UK, at 10 times the rate of, 
of places like Norway, Finland, Japan, and so forth. Even though the crime rates in Western Europe are now virtually equal to that of the United States, still the incarceration rate in the United States is much, much more extreme. And, of course, we know that it's disproportionately blacks, black and brown people that are locked up. About 38% black, about 30% Latino, in, in, and, and they combine represent about a quarter of the population. So if we think of the idea of taking the level of incarceration back to where this whole process began, back to about 1980, back to a level that looks something like the European countries were talking about reducing the prison population by 75 to 80%. We're talking about releasing or reducing those, that population number by 1.7, 1.8 million people. Now, that requires an enormous scale of change. And most importantly, it requires an enormous change of mindset. Because what has triggered mass incarceration has been the idea that poverty must be punished. And that it's somehow more efficient to spend money on prisons and jails than on public housing, than on job training than on mental health facilities. So we've seen in the last three decades, the major public housing undertaken in the United States has been the construction of prisons and jails. And we've seen mental, ho mental hospitals across the country close down, and instead people with mental illness are locked up in prisons and jails. So we find there's about 10 times as many people with mental illness in prisons and jails now as there are in mental hospitals. It's a warehouse. That's exactly right. <coughs> exactly right. And, what <coughs> and what's happened inside those institutions is that people, the education, the job training has been shut down. The last prison that I was in in Susanville, California, a place that PBS made a documentary about called Prison Town USA. The whole economy of the town revolves around prisons. That prison had a, an, an, a motor mechanics training workshop, a horticultural training area, and an institutional kitchen to train people in institutional cooking. And none of it was used. Millions of dollars millions of dollars put into these facilities, nothing, no job training, a little bit of GED, a little bit of adult basic education. Most people were doing what? Exercise, watching TV, playing dominoes. Of course, a few of us did individual kind of study, but there was nothing, there was nothing structured. There was nothing really to fill our days. So if we are to deal with mass incarceration. We have to begin to change that mindset. And it's a mindset that's infused politicians across the board. Democrats and Republicans have all voted for prison. They've all voted for punishment for the last three decades. Reagan, the Bushes, Clinton, Obama, they've all been supplying money and resources 
for for policing to lock people up, the war on drugs, the war on immigrants, and then supplying money to build these institutions. In California, the prison that I was in, High Desert Prison, was one of nine prisons that were built in California in the 1990s. Each one cost between 150 and $200 million. What could you do with that money better than build a prison? So we're talking about the need to reallocate that money, to think how can we use that money in the communities that have been decimated by mass incarceration, which is mostly inner city black and brown communities, have been devastated by the absence of thousands and thousands of male residents and the burden that has been then placed on the community those who are left behind, which is mostly women, sisters, mothers, grandmothers, spouses, trying to fend in the absence of the financial, emotional, and parenting support from men, but also in the situation where there are less and less welfare benefits for them to, to access less education and more intensive policing in those, in those communities. So, in order to reverse that process, we need a big, big change in mindset. Otherwise, even if we release people from prison, what are they going to do when they get out? Where are they going to go? <clears throat> We're going to be creating massive skid rows in all of our cities, as if we don't have enough poverty in, in our cities already. Imagine another 1.7 million people coming onto the streets. Where, where are they going to live? Where are they going to work? How are they going, how are they going to survive? So we need, yes, we need to change the sentencing laws. We need, to stop, we need to stop sending people away for 30, 40, and 50 years for drug offenses. We need that to happen. But we also need to change the way in which we think about how we spend, about how we spend money, and what the priorities are, and what we think about these people that are being warehoused. Going back to the piece that I read at the beginning, to, to find ways to think of people who have been incarcerated as human beings deserving of rights, deserving of opportunities, not as, as people that are somehow less than human and deserve to continue to be punished for the rest of their life because of a, a mistake they committed uh, when, when, when they were young that resulted in, in their incarceration. So I could say a lot more about this, but I'm going to just make one more comment. And that is to, to achieve the kind of change that we need to end mass incarceration, we need a very broad social movement that brings together a lot of the people who have been directly affected by this. People who have been incarcerated and their family members and so forth. But we need that also to involve a range of other people who are not satisfied that mass incarceration has reached the scale that it has and recognize that it's a blight on the landscape. It's a blight on the human beings that that live in the United States, and it needs to be and it needs to be reversed. So that's not going to happen. I'm happy that the politicians are taking it up. I'm sure that they will pass some laws that will have an impact. But there needs to be 
a lot of voices pushing them to keep going, keep going, keep going, because they will, they will, they will stop long before the problem is is solved. If there's not pressure from below to keep to keep them going and 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 make the kind of change that's needed in order to end mass incarceration. So I'm going to stop there and open the floor up and wait to hear from your uh, hear your questions and so forth. Because we are podcasting this, if you have a question, please speak into the mic. You have a question? Thank you very much. Very good presentation. Can you comment a little bit more about the parole system? Is it being fair? What can be done to make it more fair to have prisoners come out more quickly and all that? What can we do on and in the free world to help convince the parole boards and uh, courts that's involved in this process to speed up the process, as they say. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's, I mean, there's two parts of, in dealing with parole, there's two parts of it. One is just convincing parole boards to release people. And I mean, in many states, you know, parole boards are extremely hard line. They're very, you know, they're very strict about not releasing very many people and they take pride in being tough and so forth. And that's clearly not, that's clearly not a, a, a positive approach. But I think more importantly is parole officers have become police. Parole officers used to be part social worker. In fact, I was in Europe last year and I spoke to a room full of probation officers. And I told them that if I was speaking to a room full of probation officers and parole officers in the United States and I said what I was getting ready to say, I'd be scared to death and I'd be wanting some company when I went out to the parking lot because the, my experience of being on parole, I mean, my parole officer didn't come through the, my front door with an uh, officer of, uh, to help me find a job or to help me get an ID. He came, with his, he came packing with his 9mm on his hip telling me all the things I better not do or I was going to end up back in prison. And that's the kind of mentality that we've built in parole officers. So a lot of them spend a lot of time cruising around in police cars looking for their charges on the street instead of helping them. I work in a reentry program where I, in, in Champaign-Urbana, we started up a reentry program to try to help people coming out because they're getting nothing. They're getting nothing from, they're getting nothing from, from, from the parole agents. They're getting... We finally we asked the parole we asked the parole office the local parole office can you give us a list of of companies places of employment that will hire people with felony convictions so they gave us a list of about eight employers and we knew at least one of them had been closed down for five years and that's what they're giving people so there's no there so a probate. Parole and probation officers, for the most part, are not being trained to help people transition. They're being trained to keep an eye on them with the idea that they're going back. Because what you have to realize that although this system is horrific for the people who are locked up and their family members, some people benefit from this system, or it wouldn't keep going. So the, the logic of it is to keep people coming back. So the parole system has become a setup. 
It's become a setup for people to go back on technical violations. You, you, you don't tell your parole officer that you moved and you end up doing a year in prison for that? Come on. Does that, how much sense does that make? You're spending thirty, forty thousand dollars of taxpayer money because somebody didn't phone the parole officer and tell them well, I moved from point A to point B, or I, I missed a meeting with my parole officer. Come on. So, I mean, if you're talking about the parole system, you're really talking about re-educating. This is why I talk about this issue of mindset. You're talking about re-educating the system. We've had a whole generation now of parole and probation officers that have come up under mass incarceration. They've come up with this, men- this punishment mentality. We need a whole new generation of people, if they're going to play that role, that think like, I'm, I'm going to sit down and say, like what I do when someone comes through the door, I'm going to say, okay, let's talk about your situation. What do you need? You got clothes? You got a place to live? You got any, any family connection? You got an ID? You got a birth certificate? You got a social security card? I mean, all the basic things. If you don't have any of those, you're, 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 you're heading right back through the gate where you, that you just came out of. <clears throat> Drivers, well, yeah, I mean, they've, they've got this conspiracy now to suspend people's driver's license for a whole bunch of stuff that's got nothing to do with driving. You can't pay a $150 fine, they suspend your driver's license. You can't get to work without driving. You drive, you get pulled over, you get a driver with a suspended license, you end up doing 60 days in the county, the next time you do six months in the county, the next time you do a year in the county, I mean, you know, and the fines keep going up. So it's just... You know, it, 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 it's madness. I mean, a lot of this stuff, I think for a lot of people, a lot of people only heard about this when Ferguson came out. And, and maybe some people think that only happens in Ferguson. That's happening everywhere. It's happening everywhere. That's the way the system works now. And, the, and local governments are, are, are relying on that money to, to, pay, to pay their bills. In addition... In addition to local governments, then, who really is profiting, making the most money off of this kind of prison industrial complex? Well, the, the people who get the most attention in that prison industrial complex about as profiteers are the private prison companies, Correction Corporation of America and the GEO Group being the two biggest ones. And they do make money. And they're important, but they're not that important. I mean, they hold about 8% of the prison beds in the country. Um, so they're not really, they're, they're not as important as, 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 as the state departments of correction. So I think, I think there, there's the piece of making money, which, and there's a lot of companies making money. Architects and engineers, construction companies, those companies that I just talked about that had the contract to build those nine prisons in California for 150 to 200 million. They're, they're not against mass incarceration. Let's have more of it. I mean, that's a lot of, that's a lot of money. You got, you got the phone companies. We just ha- we've had a lot of campaigning around that. Securus Technologies made $114 million last year off of phone calls, overcharging people, people paying it. I mean, I was, my family was paying a dollar a minute for phone calls when I was, when I was locked up. You know, um, so there's all there's healthcare companies, Aramark food, uh, food service delivery. It's a, you know they do a lot of colleges, they do a lot of prisons. They got they got banned recently in Michigan because they kept serving maggots in the food. But um, um, so so there's all those companies. But I think it's important to recognize that the people in the departments of corrections 
are benefiting financially from this as well. They don't make profit directly, but their livelihood depends on that. And in some, and in California, where I was locked up, the prison guards union is a den of corruption. And so they charge dues. They have they make millions of dollars in dues, and they put it into the campaign coffers of, of politicians who are going to support more prisons and, 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 and harder laws. But they also do all these overtime scams. So in, you, you, get about, you have about four or 5,000 prison guards in California every year that make over $100,000 a year with a high school education. So it's a scam. It's a scam. A lot of people make money. And that's why it's hard to change because those people are going to fight back because, I mean, they're benefiting. And in those small towns like Susanville, California, you know, the whole economy revolves around the prison. Um, good evening. How are you doing tonight? I'm fine. Um, like you was mentioning about the corrections facility and the overcrowdedness. And I'm not one that likes to visit those places. And my brother's just coming home from doing 30 years. And that's the last time I spoke to him until the other day. I still haven't seen him yet. I mean, that's a 30-year gap between me and him. All he wanted was a radio for the charge he was accused of. And that's where he stayed for 30 years. For something he didn't do. So, I mean, I know I came in late on your introduction. But I pretty... I pretty, you know, feel for what you be saying because most of it is true. All of it's true, and um, I'm glad you made it all okay. Thank you. Well, thank, thank, thank you for coming and um, welcome your brother home for me when, when you, when you see him, and, and I'll give you a card. We can, if there's anything I can do, let me know. Um, I would like you to comment on the possible correlation between prisoners' jobs and prisoners' pay and the expansion of prisons. Um, so you're, you're talking about people, people in working prison. inside prison? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a, there's, there's a couple pieces to that. I mean, once again, I think a lot of, there's, there's been a lot of talk about prisons being sweatshops um, and that my multinational companies are making millions off of prison labor in the U.S. Mm, that's not really true. I mean, it's a very small number of people that actually are under contract. Less than 5,000 people are under contract for outside corporations and making, maybe they make minimum wage, maybe they make less than that. So, the idea that you know IBM and General Motors and Cisco and all these companies are making huge portions portions of their profit off prison labor in the U.S. is it's it's a little bit of it's a little bit of a myth. Where so there's I mean there's two kinds of work that people tend to do in prison. One is they might do they might do work under government contracts, um, producing a whole range of things. And I mean I did a, about three three plus years in the feds and, and in the federal system. And, um, you know, we, we had 
people uh, assembling telecommunications uh, equipment for the Department of Defense. And people made about, mm, I'm thinking people made maybe $1.25 an hour. Now, in prison, $1.25 an hour is, that's great money. I mean, that, you're, you get prison rich if, you got if you're making a buck twenty-five an hour. So, I mean, from the outside, that looks terrible. And it is terrible, if, if, particularly if people are making profits off of it. Um, but once again, that's about 60,000, 70,000 people nationally that are involved in that kind of, in that kind of work. I mean, the, from the, you know, the stereotype making license plates to a whole range of other things. But a lot of it is making clothes, making furniture, making mattresses, things like that for, for government institutions. Um, and then you have a whole range of... And then most other people work doing other jobs like building maintenance or working in the kitchen. Um, I was... I, I worked in the kitchen. I also was a, a teaching assistant. Um, I started off, well, I was a teaching assistant in the feds, and I was a teaching assistant in the state. In, in the federal system, I made about $70 a month, which was quite a lot. And in the state, I made uh, 12 cents an hour. Um, so, well below minimum wage. Well below minimum wage, so... Um, so, but it's, but it's complicated because, I, I, I mean, demanding minimum wage for people working in prisons, ultimately that means putting more money into corrections. You know, because it would cost, if we were paying everybody who was working inside prison uh, a minimum wage, it would mean putting millions and millions onto the correction budget in order to pay those people. So, I mean, I would say the choice... If the choice is pay them more or let's get them out, let's work to get it. Let's get let's work to get them out. I mean, that's yeah. But there's no easy I want, choices. <laughs> I wanted to uh, ask you if you you don't have to answer, but um, if you if you could tell us what you, what you got in put in for. I got put in for being involved in political violence in the 1970s, hmm. and that's about. Well, that was a tough time. I know. Cause yeah. Anti-war. And you can Google me and find out the whole story, and I'm, I don't yeah. particularly want to tell. But I, but I want to also ask, um, I mean, say and make a statement that I believe that a lot of the um, drug offense, especially marijuana, I don't think you should be in jail for that, really, probably. But some of the other drugs may, I don't know, if you should, heavier drugs, maybe you still be, should be. But, but some of the things now, for instance... When you're texting and driving or you're drinking and driving and you get an accident and you kill somebody, I don't think they get enough time. Like that bishop that killed that poor bicyclist, you know? And they've been doing it for a while, and I don't think they get enough time. I really don't. Well, I think, you know, on the drug piece, I mean, I'm in favor of legalizing drugs. I think drugs should be, uh, you know, handled like alcohol is handled. Um, and... Um, I wanted to just so I think in terms of who gets locked up this is a quote from a federal judge he says of the 2600 people I've sent to prison I've seen three or four kingpins we're incarcerating poor uneducated people who are drug addicts right. so when we're doing that we're talking about a medical problem. We're talking about a social problem because people are people are not people are not addicted to drugs simply because 
They like drugs. They're addicted to drugs because the rest of their life has a too many problems that they can't cope with. And so if you're going to deal with drug addiction, yes, we can do treatment, but we have to treat holistically. That is, we have to treat the community that people, the communities that people are in and give people access to housing and job opportunities and the things that make people able to cope with life without, without that excessive you know, reliance on, 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 on drugs. So it's, uh, it's, it, it's, it's a big task. But, but fortunately, I mean, people are beginning to wake up to it, but we still have a long way to go. I'm, uh, you know, I'm not in favor of giving people more time. I think there's a lot. I think there's a lot of ways to handle problems, and I'm I'm really not somebody who thinks prison helps anybody. Um, and I mean, I, it, it, you know, there's a philosophy called prison abolition, meaning that we should now, and when, you know, usually when you say prison abolition, most people go. You're going to let all the mass murders out. Charles Manson's coming out. Dylan Roof's coming out. You know, we're, we're, but that's not the point. The, the, the point really is to, to figure out ways to address social problems without incarcerating, you know, without relying on punishment. Let's, let's find ways, let's find ways to, 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 to deal with that. I'm not saying that, and I'm not saying that um, absolutely never, no one should ever be locked up. But what I do say is that let's take, let's get that 75% out. Let's bring, let's bring the U.S. population down, a prison population down to a level that's, that's at least parallel with other societies. And then let's talk about whether or not that other 25% needs to be, needs to remain. Because I don't know anybody, whether they're prison abolitionists or not, who are out there saying they want to get Charles Manson out of prison. That's not, that's that's not it. So it's but it, 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 we need to look at these things on on case by case basis. Hi, good evening, Mr. James. Thank you again for coming. And I came in kind of late, but I'm happy to be here and hear this. So he actually took my question about why you were incarcerated, but I'll Google it later for my own research. And my question is: Is the book available in Barnes and Noble? Um, I don't know. It's available out in the hall, but I <laughs> <laughs> um, I know it's on Amazon. I don't know if it's on Barnes and Noble. Yeah, it is on Amazon, yeah. Thank you. Thanks for speaking. Uh, You mentioned earlier, um, you mentioned myths, and uh, you've spoken a little bit about uh, sort of uh, mindsets about people deserving punishment or, um, and I think there's another group of people that that, uh, legitimize prison in their head because it's a form of uh, sort of the myth of, rehabilitation or reintegration with society. And so I feel like a lot of good, meaning, well-meaning people think that prison's a good idea for that, Rick, in that way. Uh, but that doesn't end up happening, and it's not what it looks like at all. And so could you talk a little bit about, about that myth of rehabilitation that, um, or, or people that want prison to be a force for good and how that doesn't pan out? Right. Well, see, I mean, I think what happened... In the 1980s, when we moved to mass incarceration, when we did the war on drugs, when we put in place all these huge, you know, all these uh, excessive sentencing laws, um, 
what what went along with that was the idea that people were being put in prison to be punished. And before that, the idea was that people could rehabilitate. That, And in fact, in most places you had, in like in the federal system, for example, you had a parole situation where you had incentives to get released early. Um, if you did education programs, if you had a job, if you didn't get disciplinary write-ups, etc., etc., you would do less time. So there was a reward. There was a reward for participation. But with the shift toward this punitive mentality, this punishment mentality, that system of rewards went away, and we moved to warehousing. So I think a lot of people really still people who aren't directly impacted by this, which is really you know. The, the mass of white middle class people are not very much impacted by this. They still kind of think that all this rehabilitation stuff is going on, but it's not. And so people are coming out, you know, with no more options or skills or understandings than when they went in, in a lot of instances. Now, I mean, a lot of people do, you know, do things on their own, and there are education programs, and there are a lot of people who do some, who do good work. I mean, I work... I'm on an advisory board of something called the Education Justice Project, and we deliver college courses to people at a local prison. Um, and it's a great program. And the people that are in that program, you know, they re- it really turns their lives around because it creates within the prison an education-oriented community. So they're going to be, instead of playing dominoes, they're going to be talking about Plato. Right? I mean, they're going to be they're going to be thinking about. And they're going to be then they're going to start dreaming about their future and making plans for it, and they have the support of a program to help them to help them get there. So, but but we don't have those we don't have those things in most places. So that whole rehabilitation piece, it's just it's just disappeared, and it's part of what needs to come back. I'm not always crazy about the word rehabilitation, but we need when people are in prison, they need to be given something that increases their that changes them. And gives them more opportunities when they're when they're released, because one of the things we know is that people, you know, people do things when they're young that they'll never do when they're older. Right? And so, why do we keep somebody in prison for something they did when they're eighteen? We keep them there for forty years. They don't need forty years to learn that lesson in most cases. Um, on the way down uh, to the library tonight. I heard this on the news that they just sentenced a young man in Baltimore who's 24 years old in federal prison, in a federal trial, over something that happened during Freddie Gray uprising, <clears throat> to four years in prison and $500,000 restitution. So what's the likelihood that that young life could ever even do any of that? How's he ever going to come up with $500,000? If he had $500,000, he wouldn't have been living where he was living and hanging out or, you know, he would have been doing something. Well, yeah, and if he had $500,000, he would have had a whole team of lawyers to get him off, too. But, right. Um, so that's, I mean, what good does it do to sentence somebody to $500,000 restitution? Yeah, but where where's he... I thought yeah. when you did restitu- when you ordered somebody to do restitution, don't 
shouldn't a judge or some system be thinking about how is he ever going to do it? Especially, how's he going to pay it back in four years? Most people well, he doesn't, have a job couldn't. He pay doesn't. Back in he, four years. He's not going to pay it back in four years. He's going to have that restitution hanging over his head for the rest of his life, and he's going to be and he's going to be constantly getting dragged into court and being told to pay the restitution. He's going to get his wage. If he works, he's going to get his wages attached. Mm-hmm. I mean. You know, he's not going to be able to buy a house. He's not going to be able to do anything like that. Yeah, it's that 500000 I mean, that's part of the punitive mentality is, is piling these fines on people. And that's, I mean, that's an extraordinary fine. I mean, but most people coming, most people coming through the federal system are getting ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 restitution. Um, and, you know, the, the, it, it just, it's, it's, it's just a lifetime of, it's a lifetime of debt, um, which really undermines their, uh, you know, ability to, 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 to carry on. And it makes, it, 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 it does make no sense. It does make no sense. So, um, I came down here with the question to ask you about uh, women and men. Is this addressed in your book about the women in the system? Do you consider that this system applies to women that are in prison too? Or is it mostly just... Um, happening to young latino and and black men well if we look at the, if if we look at the at who's in prison about 90% of the people in prison are men Well, I think, I mean, I, I do talk about women's prisons, and I talk about the gendered impact of mass, in, mass incarceration. Why are men locked up? Well, what do we think? Uh, and is it starting at the education system? Is it starting from foster care? Is it, I mean, I've seen lots of documentaries. Is it um, starting with the Civil War? One of the books takes the position that the roots of mass incarceration are in the Civil War. Well, you, you know, even even farther back than that, but but I think, but I, I mean, I think that I mean, there's a lot of you know gender dynamics in terms of how people, uh, in, in terms of how people are raised in different in different communities and what ha- and what economic opportunities are available to you know to men and women. I think also that you know parenting has a lot to do with it in terms of who gets in terms of who gets uh, uh, in, in involved in things and who gets and who gets incarcerated. Um, but I think it's imp- I think it's wrong. I, I, I mean, I think it's wrong to say that only men are in, affected because they're the ones who are incarcerated. Now, Be- I'm not yeah. That, but why are there so many uh, men? Well, that are in the well, I think if we, I, mean, I think also if we look at if we look at the war on drugs, for example, and then you go back. I mean, and I talk about this in in the chapter on on sort of the war on drugs and on also building a popular base of support for mass incarceration. If we, look at, if we look back at the Reagan era, we have the creation of the myth of the black drug dealer. Right? That, so the war on drugs came with an image of who the perpetrators were. And so, I mean, they've done these, they do these, you know, they do these workshops where they say, where they ask everybody to close their eyes and say, okay, think of a black uh, sorry, think of a drug dealer. Now, what does he look like? And almost everyone comes up with a young black male probably wearing you know, certain kinds of clothes and so forth. So there's a whole question of imaging, which then becomes reality, which then affects the way 
It affects, I think it affects policing. I think it affects the way in which young black men are treated in, in, in school. Um, I, I think there's a whole range of things that, you know, that, 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 that contribute, contribute to that. I don't think there's, and there's not one, one easy explanation. Okay, this is um, the last question. And then there are plenty of books out there that you can buy. And Mr. Gilgore will sit at the front and you can go up and if you want to chat with him, that's fine too. Last question. Thank you. Um, they just released 6,000 prisoners from the federal penal system. They let them out of jail because they were nonviolent drug offenders. Some of them had 11 year sentences and they got it reduced by six months. But they made no attempt to offer any of these released prisoners an opportunity to do anything but go home. They made now no allowances for uh, anything other than the bus ride. Come back where you came from. Let 6,000 of them out of jail. Uh, right down the street here on Madison Street, they have a place called the Chesapeake Detention System. Federal facility, they do 95% of their time. They are, they are worth $129 a day. Treatment costs $2.50, but they won't let them out of jail. I think the problem that they with the system is the taxpayers are tired of paying for prisons. They want them all out, so they won't put their money somewhere else. Money getting tight these days. That's if right. you wonder how that guy's going to pay a half a million dollars, he's going to buy a lot of lottery tickets and pray. <laughs> there you go. Let me just say something about those 6,000. Okay. Almost a third of them are, going, are not going home. They're going to immigration detention centers, and they're going to get, end up getting deported. Of the rest of those, three-quarters of them are in halfway houses or at home on an electronic monitor. That's not, that's not being released from prison. A halfway house is not being released from prison. You're still doing time when you're in a halfway house. And I did a year on an electronic monitor with house arrest. And that's not being free. That's not being free. I consider that to be a form of, you know, of technological incarceration. And only your jailers is your family. Your, your, your family pays for your expenses, and they got to watch out for you and make sure you don't violate the rules of the electronic monitor so you end up back in prison. So you put all this, you shift all that responsibility onto them. So the, the idea that they're released, I'm, 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 you know, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not buying it. If you're putting them in a halfway house, they're still doing time. So, but it's, it's a smokescreen, and that's, that's why I say I worry about when the politicians start saying we're going to do this, this, and this, and this, we got to read the fine print. We got to read between the lines. What are they really doing? When they release people, what are they releasing them to? Like your, the point you're making. If you're not given, if you, if you've kept somebody there on 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 one of these ridiculous crack sentences where people are getting a hundred times, where black people are getting a hundred times as much time as white people for the same for the same possession. Shouldn't you be saying, well, actually, if the law, law had been equal, you would have done two years instead of 11, so we're going to give you a little bit of money for that nine years of your life that we stole. Wouldn't that kind of look a little bit more like something that would work? But that's not, what we're, that's not what's happened. That's why I worry about putting a lot of people, decarcerating a lot of people without making a plan for where they're going to land and what they're going to do. Because they're going to end up, A, they're going to end up poor in the streets, and B, I mean, you know, they're going to do what they've got to do to survive, right?
That's right. In Illinois, when you're released, they give you ten dollars. If it's winter time, they still don't give you a jacket. They give you two hoodies. Two hoodies. Two hoodies. You know how cold it gets in Illinois? We're talking like minus five, minus ten. I mean, it's cold. That two hoodies isn't going to do it. That and that ten dollars isn't going to buy you a coat either. Yeah, you head for the nearest shelter and. Buy a lottery ticket with that $10 and pray. <laughs> so we got to think, we got to think deep about how we do this. How, I mean, how we change the system so we don't just make another mess. Yeah. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming and thank you. Thank you. <laughs>